surprising joy, we find this verse back in Acts. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And I don't know how many times you've read that little bit of a man of Macedonia and, and thought that's oh, just one of those phrases, part of the backstory, uh, and you just gloss over it and go on to what's the story about. But today we're going to say, what is that detail about the man of Macedonia? Because that anchors this letter to the Philippians in historical reality. So Paul on this day is in a place called Troas. He's had a crusade, an evangelistic crusade. He's gone all the way in modern Turkey. And this is the places that he's been. And you've got your good eyesight on to see that. Um, he's got Derby, Lystra and Iconium up along the border. Let's see if my pointer works here. Um, no, that pointer doesn't work. Doesn't matter. We'll zoom in. Oh, you can see it on the wall, yes. This is not very useful if you want to see it on the screen. <laughs> so there he is in Troas. Just up there. He's going to come all the way across. He wanted to get into the province above, couldn't get in. He's in Troas. He gets a message, a man of Macedonia, and there's Macedonia on the other side over there. And so he makes it there to Macedonia to a town of Philippi, which was originally called Crenides, which means the little fountains. And that was because it had many springs nearby. And it became called Philippi at some stage because that was the city of Philip. After Alexander the Great's daddy, Philip II of Macedon, conquered it in the 4th century BC to get its gold mines. Well, 200 years later, the Romans then conquered it again and Philippi became part of the Roman province of Macedonia. And what else is important about Philippi was there was a very famous battle there which transformed Rome from being a republic to an empire. And that was fought near Philippi when Anthony and Octavian's army defeated Brutus and Cassius' army. And so Philippi was a Roman colony and they had many veterans settled in there and because it was a colony that made it a bit different it was not under the local government it had the same rights as cities in Italy and as such it was under Roman law and good news they had a few less taxes and the residents could also be Roman citizens and the Philippians were very proud about being a Roman colony they used the language of the Romans Latin for their official language and they adopted many Roman customs and the way they did government was modelled on the Italian way. And if you know that, that gives a little bit more insight into you know, the story when Paul got put into prison because he'd evicted a fortune teller telling demon out of a slave girl and they put him in prison there in Philippi and he got badly beaten, he was wrongly imprisoned and it explains how Paul in that story could have enough leverage to demand that the city rulers come and apologise personally and lead him themselves out of prison because this was a town which looked up to Romans. And they realised they'd made a really grave blunder in rushing to punish 
this guy who they didn't realise was a Roman citizen, Paul. And also the fact that Philippi is a colony means that the Philippians really understood what Paul meant when he says in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven because their citizenship was in Rome, a long way off. And that's, that's like us. Our Christian citizenship is a long way off in heaven. So he gets to Philippi. And there weren't many Jews there. There weren't even enough to have a synagogue. And all you needed was about 10 heads of the household. And so what did they do? They gathered down by the river there, the Cronides River, and they worshipped there. And it was there, as you remember from Acts, that they met this woman, Lydia, who believed the gospel. And she got baptised with her household and she put up lodgings in town. And there's a sort of map of what it looked like. You can see that river we just saw down on the, down on the corner there. We'll get to see a picture in a little bit of the theatre. And through the middle we've got this big road, which is like Route 66. Uh, one of the main pathways through. There's another picture of it. Uh, obviously there's uh, Nobbs Hill up top. don't know who lived up there, but somebody did. And there's the plains nearby, which had that famous battle between the, the two parts of the Romans. And there's plenty of room to have a good old battle there. There is some of it left today. There are ruins, which is very similar to what we saw on our, our map, because it is the same thing. And I said there was this uh, theatre, a pretty decent theatre in Philippi. And if you get up close to it, you can see uh, lots of chimneys. I reckon you know, if you drive around the country, the only part of the house left standing is the chimney. They're not really chimneys, but it sort of looks like it. And what about that, as I said, the main highway ran through the middle? Well, it was very durable because it's still there, but I don't know how comfy it would be in a chariot driving along that. I reckon even the four-wheel drive would have a bit of tr trouble getting a nice smooth road along there. <laughs> One more detail which is a little bit more historically dubious is the jail, the Philippians ja Philippian jail where uh, the door, the earthquake, the door's flung open. Uh, that's historically what they, they say, that's the jail. And if you look down in it, you can see it's a pretty solid little place. So that's where they went, Philippi, on the second missionary journey, but also went the beginning and the end of the third journey and then about four or five years after that, we got a mob from Philippi, and they're including Epaphroditus, and they come and they take a care package off to Rome, to Paul. On the way, one of their guys, Epaphroditus, gets, almost dies, and so Paul says, look, mate, go back home, recover. And it, sends him, it tells him in the letter, look, he, he didn't do anything wrong, he's a good guy, he's just crook, he needs to recover. And all of that background adds up to the fact that the Philippian Christians were very special to Paul. They were a very special mob. And so he's writing now, he's stuck in a prison in Rome, and he writes to them and he says, thanks for the gift. And I just want to tell you why I've sent Epaphroditus back. And tells them how it's going in Rome and says, look, stay unified and watch out for false teachers. And apart from a, 
a wonderfully deep section in chapter 2 about uh, Christ and his humiliation and exaltation. It's mostly a pretty practical letter with one characteristic which I've mentioned already that stood out for many people who read this and that's the fact that he refers to joy very often. He has, uses five different word, Greek words for joy, mentions it 15 times in a fairly small book. Paul is full of joy. And it's got nothing to do with the bleakness of his circumstances because he's in prison. And he's in prison and it's not a burden to him. He's in there and what's he doing? He's praying and then all the things he prays, he prays with joy in regard to these guys. So keep that idea of joy on the back burner as we go through Philippians and notice the things that bring joy to Paul. And notice what brings him to what he said, which I started off the service with, to be able to say, rejoice in the Lord always. Now say it again, rejoice. And he's saying this in the middle of a desperate situation and trying to get the message to, to us that joy is not tied to what's happening in your life, not happening to your circumstances if they're bad. So he goes, he expands it a bit more. <clears throat> it says in verse 5, we're in Philippians 1, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And if, you're, if you tend to be a warrior, tend to be anxious about stuff, you ought to take these two verses, 6 and 7, away and let them go over them and over them and over them and over them. So the truth of this comes in as to what you can do about anxiety and worry. And so Paul's going to start off with his um, message, it's a letter, and he starts off with a Dear John, well, how they did Dear John in those days. And mostly in other letters, when he starts off with his Dear John, he actually asserts very deliberately his spiritual authority because there are lots of guys who had different and competing views against him. But in this case, it's just my mates, it's, it's my homies, it's, it's, it's these great guys at Philippi and so I can just be myself. And so that's how he starts off his letter, him and Timothy. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then out comes his love. And I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. He really loves these believers. They make him happy. His heart is full when he thinks of them. And he goes on to explain why that is. Because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now. Because the Philippians got it. They took on board the message 
and they worked with Paul to get the message out and became missionary partners. But Paul has a greater confidence than just their past history of working together. He has a confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit in them which brought him great joy because he says, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so he's trusting in God the Holy Spirit's capacity to work in their lives, to do all that he wants to do in them. And that's very important to hear that because we tend to think sometimes it's, it's just me doing this and, and I'm not up for the job. But the Holy Spirit has got the capacity to carry on the good work in you to completion. It doesn't just depend upon us. See, I often, often wondered how Paul could do this. How do you travel around city after city, preach the gospel, get converts, teach them what you could in the time you had there until someone threw you out of the city, and then sort of just move on, which is sort of like abandoning them to a new faith after only a few months. And I thought, how come the church didn't just fade away quietly? I mean, there wasn't sufficient pastoral care. People couldn't text him for advice or FaceTime him for encouragement. They couldn't email a tricky question to him. And some of them might have only seen him once in their life, met him a couple of times, and yet... Out of doing things that way grew a worldwide church because Paul knew by faith that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we've got to grab that. The fact that the Holy Spirit is inexorably, unstoppably building the kingdom of God Sometimes it's with your help and sometimes it's without. And so the loving continues. He said, well, it's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, you know, he's out there preaching, all of you sharing God's grace with me. And God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's just saying, I'm missing you guys. I'm pining for you. But nevertheless, he knows he's still connected with them. Even though his body's not there, he's still connected because both he and they are connected through God's grace and they're all graciously saved, they're all part now of the same family, they're all enjoying the favour of God wherever they are and they're all enjoying the same loving gaze of the Father God. And so when he prays for them, he feels connected to them and boy, does he pray some good stuff. And I wonder when you last prayed this prayer for someone, because he's got some good ideas and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. We like to ask for the Lord to fix legs and help with ailments, but do you pray that their love may abound more and more? Ah, yes, love. 
There was a pop song back in the day that said, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there isn't enough of. But the type of love that the world wants is not necessarily the type of love that Paul's going to go on and explain here. It's a love in knowledge and depth of insight. So Paul's not praying they'll have exceeding amounts of blind love, of romantic love, of, oh, we just need to love and hug one another. We just need a love that has no boundaries. And we're seeing that idea around, the idea that if you're going to really love someone, then you'll accept any sort of behaviour, you'll agree with any of their opinions, you'll support any of their descriptions of reality at all. And that's not what he's talking about. In the most foundational area of life, like in the playground, in the sandpit, if kids don't learn to accept a no there, if they don't learn to follow instructions early in life, if they don't learn to live within the boundaries of reality, then it's not the love they need. They're not getting the love they need. Their life could end up being a disaster. So Paul's praying for them to love in knowledge and depth of insight, Prays for their love to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that, why? So you can discern what's best. Yeah, discern, work it out, and then so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the type of love he's praying for them uh, discerns what's best, what's right. And it implements that, it lives it out. So your life is pure and blameless. It's not the love that says, do anything you like. Have no boundaries. And the fruit of that type of love is so that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That comes through Jesus Christ. And it's all to the glory and praise of God. And in contrast with that fruit, just for an example that I thought of, that uh, there's a worldly way of thinking about love. And in the United States, there's been a guy, I believe George Soros, who's been working with district attorneys for many years. He said, we need to love them. We don't need to prosecute people. We need to set them free and get back into society. No boundaries. Does it work? No. I much prefer the fruit, which comes from Paul's way of thinking about love. Your love must have knowledge and insight. And the next point that Paul wants to highlight is the interesting feature of speaking the truth in love. Things are not always what they seem at first glance. What looks like a disaster, Paul's in prison, may in fact prove to be just the opposite. And that's an important thing to get. That it's best to lovingly speak the truth, even if you don't know what the outcome will be, still speak the truth, even if you guess that others are not going to be happy about it. Because in the long run, truth is the best way to go. And so... He illustrates this with his life. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. 
As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace, guard, and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. In chains for Christ. Well, most commentators think he was chained to a soldier for four to six hour shifts, 24 hours a day. Now, I ask you, what do you think is going to be the result of chaining guys to an evangelist for four-hour shifts? He's got a captive audience. And he's not known for keeping quiet, is he? He could preach for hours, this guy, at a time. And so this unexpected fruit of his imprisonment was the whole palace guard became aware that Paul was in chains for Christ. But there's more. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And so that's the power of modelling, showing the way, do as I do. You've got to remember, they didn't have a whole pile of church-going generations of grandfathers and grandmothers. They didn't observe all that. They just had the first ever Christians to observe and so who's the first guy they saw evangelising? Well, Paul. And they just followed his example. They also proclaimed the gospel without fear. And I'm also guessing that some of the new believers uh, looked at uh, Paul and said, hmm, yeah, I can do that. Well, actually, I think I can do better because I don't like the way Paul does this. I think we ought to do it this way. And, hey, he's got a nice group of followers going. Ooh, I can do that too. I'll get my own little franchise, build up my own church, which, of course, will be better than his. That's what he's saying. It's true that some preach out of envy and rivalry. Others, out of goodwill. Those guys do it out of love, and, and they know that I'm here to defend the gospel. But the first lot of guys... They preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Well, I'm going to have the best church. And they don't preach it sincerely. And they think, oh, we can make him jealous of what we're doing. We can stir up trouble for him while he's in chains. So what's Paul think about this? Uh, couldn't care. What's the matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether it's from false motives or true, Christ preached. Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. And there it's got that joy again. Rejoice. There's joy in there. Paul got real joy from preaching the good news about Jesus. And it's been the same way ever since. The more you tell people about Jesus, the more joy you have. That's how it goes. How else did he get joy? He got joy from knowing that the Philippians were praying for you. For him, yeah. And I will continue to rejoice, have joy, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what's happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Deliverance? What are you talking about, Paul? You're in jail. He said it's going to turn out for deliverance. And I don't know what you think deliverance means. Uh, I think it means getting out of trouble. Uh, well, in this life, because that's all we have. But as you read the text, you could say that Paul is not worried about that type of deliverance. He's more ashamed 
is more worried about being ashamed than he is worried about being killed. His mission is more important than his comfort. He's not worried about whether he dies in the process of carrying out his mission. He's more worried about being ashamed of the way he carries out his mission. That's important to note. He's more worried about being ashamed of the way he carries out his mission. And he's expecting and he's hoping that he'll have no reason to be ashamed of how he carried out his mission. In verse 20, I eagerly inspect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And if you want to know how committed he is, he just confirms it with the next verse because he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, <clears throat> some of us live for football, others live for Bathurst or Formula One, some live for their bank balance, some live for a successful business, some live for their family, some live for their reputation, the list goes on. And the poor statement there is enormously challenging. He lives for Christ. And that means he can't lose. Even in the, if he dies in the process of telling others about Jesus, he's just going to get closer to Jesus, to the one he loves and serves. In fact, he is getting a bit tired. He wouldn't mind heading off to heaven. But he knows the consequences for others when a loved one leaves. He knows they'd rather have him around. But on the balance, so it's, that means he's happy to go on as long as he's being effective or fruitful. So if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yeah, what shall I choose? Go, stay. I don't know. I'm, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. All right. Convinced of that, I know I'll remain. And I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And so he's just talking about the joy of answered prayer there. When he sees them again, that'll be the answer to his prayers. And it's a great source of joy because I've been praying for him. And then finishes this chapter with the, the thought of the practicality of belief. There are people, and they're Gnostics, they're mystics, they're intellectuals sometimes who want to make it an emotional experience or just a spiritual experience or a set of beliefs and creeds. It has to be lived out. You have those things, but they must also be lived out. And so he reminds them of that. Whatever happens, conduct yourself. Let's live it out. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he expands a bit what that means. Then whenever I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will stand firm in the one spirit, striving together, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way 
by those who oppose you. And so he's saying, stand firm. Be definite. Be strongly committed to what you believe. And don't be afraid of the opposition. Don't be afraid. Hmm. He gives a little bit of insight into bullies about what it does to them when you stand firm and say no to those who oppose you. He says that's a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved and that by God. So you see a little bit of that type of attitude in the way some of the news outlets are painting the resistance of the Ukrainians to the Russians. They say, there's a little underdog standing up against the bully. They said, oh, that's a sign the Russia will be destroyed. Well, might be. But it still illustrates the point that if you stick to your guns against uh, bad stuff, and if you show that you're not frightened by their threats, if you show that your spirit will not be broken even if they are violent, that that really infuriates bullies. And it disempowers bullies. And it shows them that in the end... They will be destroyed, not you. And so Paul says, we just need to accept that this good news of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus sometimes comes with suffering and struggle. After all, he has to admit, well, I am in prison. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're now going through the same struggle you saw I had, and you now hear that I still have it. Yes, you're going through the same struggle that you saw I had. So, in conclusion, chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul's writing to some of his most favourite people. He's writing to his spiritual children in the Roman colony of Philippi. And they gave him heaps of joy by first accepting the gospel and then they courageously lived out the truth of that gospel and they become partners in the gospel and they, as we see, they carried on to support Paul financially and to build the kingdom of Christ in Philippi. And next week we'll go on to chapter 2 and we'll look at the model that Christ has provided for us. It's perhaps some of the most amazing summary of the of Jesus' mindset in coming to earth. It's going to be challenging, but it'll be inspiring. Let's finish in prayer. Lord, you have talked to us and shown us about joy which is not dependent upon our circumstances. Joy which is all found in you. And we thank you that that is something for all of us. That we not, should not be anxious in anything. And when we trust you, then you provide all the inner resources we need to be filled with your joy. And so we want to draw from you this morning. Fill us with your joy. Fill us with the peace that passes all understanding. Pray in the name of God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.